Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. I've been doing some math this morning. I am 46 years old. I'm going to be 47 in a few months. And the eldest members of my family have lived well into their 90s. So that means that statistically, as well as emotionally, physically, and socially, I am right smack dab in the middle of my life. But what does midlife mean? How long does it last? And is it always accompanied by a crisis? Barbara Bradley Haggerty is an award-winning journalist and former NPR correspondent who left her role as a deadline reporter in midlife to write books, including her latest called Life Reimagined. It's aimed at helping readers navigate some of the trials and the opportunities of midlife. You've been hearing stories on NPR all week long from Barbara about some of the things she's found. So today, a chance for you to get involved in this conversation. Are you in your 40s, 50s, or 60s? How has midlife been treating you? Are you in the midst of a so-called midlife crisis? Or have you started to discover some joy in your middle years? Call us at 860-275-7266. Again, our number is 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Barbara Bradley Haggerty joins us from NPR in Washington, D.C. Once again, the book is Life Reimagined, The Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife. Barbara, welcome to Where We Live. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's great to be here, John. Thanks. So, so first of all, you decided to write a book about midlife in midlife. What, what questions were you asking yourself about this whole period of your life? Well, if I can just tell you how I got going on this on this book, it actually started when my mother, who is kind of my best friend, uh, had a stroke. This was about five years ago. And uh, we weren't sure whether she would ever talk again. We weren't sure whether she would recover. And it was just this really, really sad moment for me. It was right before Memorial Day weekend. And, and I remember it was a beautiful day. And I looked outside. I was making dinner with my husband. When I looked outside, it was a gorgeous day. You know, neighbors were trotting by with their dogs. The flowers were blooming. And I looked at my husband and I said, I feel so flat. I think I'm having a midlife crisis. And he, lo- he put down the po- uh, tomato that he was slicing, and he said, don't do that. Please don't have a midlife crisis. <laughs> and so this kind of this, what I did is the next morning I began to research, am I having a midlife crisis? What is a midlife crisis? How can I avoid a midlife crisis? And that was kind of the whole impetus for the book. And this notion of a midlife crisis is something that's that's well documented, and I and I don't want to talk a bit about that. You you portray it as a myth. It's not something that is really the the thing that we hear about in modern society so much. You know, a guy decides to drop right. his job, drop his wife, buy a sports car, that sort of right. thing. This is this is a myth, really. Right, it is. It's. I mean, for about ten percent of the population, it really there really is this kind of existential angst about a dying and not fulfilling your dreams before you die. That's that's kind of the definition of midlife crisis. Only about 10% of people actually go through that. Most people, when they think they're having a midlife crisis, what they're having is a crisis at midlife, which is really common. So, you know, you get a divorce or your parent dies or you you lose your job. These are really terrible things. They're huge setbacks, but they're external to you. They're not this existential angst about aging. And what generally happens is that when people kind of get back on their feet again, 
they become happier again. So it's not a kind of alteration of their psyche the way a midlife crisis is. But but th- those things that happen in midlife that, that you're talking about, those do tend to happen to many of us, right? You you reach a moment at which whether or not you feel personally happy, fulfilled, whether or not your knees are aching or you feel physically fit, <laughs> you are probably putting an 18-year-old through college and worried about that, and you may be looking at nursing homes for your parents. I mean, that is right. Right, happening at that time. How much is that connected yeah. to the midlife crisis that people feel? You know, it's that is such a good question. Here's what's going on. There is... Everyone who's midlife, and you're barely midlife, okay? You're just barely midlife. I'm smack in the middle of it. But everyone just about feels that something is a little bit different about their 40s or 50s than, you know, the way they felt in their 20s or 30s. Life is more burdened. There's more to do. Um, You're, you know, you've got, as you mentioned, kids going, heading toward college. You've got a mortgage payment. You've got heavy responsibilities at work. Life is not giddy with happiness. And this is what actually economists have found. Economists have asked people around the world in something like 75 countries, are you happy? And they ask people of all ages. And what they find is that people in their 20s and 30s say that they're happy. But then contentment seems to kind of go downhill in a U-shaped curve. It goes down. It hits its bottom in your 40s and 50s. For men, it's 40 in America. For women, the bottom is 50. Excuse me. For men, yeah. For men, it's uh, for women, it's 40. And for men, it's 50. And then what begins to happen is you reconcile that, gee, you know what? I may not be make all of my dreams come true. I may not be CEO. I may not be pitch, a pitcher for the Red Sox. That's okay. My life is good. And you begin to reevaluate your life. And in your 50s, you swoop up that U-curve. And so actually, people in their 70s are happier than people in their 50s. People with who are on walkers or, you know, really having kind of trouble with health problems, they tend to be happier than those of us in our 50s. Are, are, are you happier in your 50s than you were in your 40s? You know, um, I... I have to tell you, I am happier now that I've written this book <laughs> because I was really buying into the myth of um, that this was it, that th- it would never get better. You know, I was really working very, very hard at work. I was seeing my parents, you know, my dad die. My dad died when I was actually in the hospital, right? So mm-hmm. I, that was a wake-up call, like, wow, my generation is the next to go. I was thinking about death a little bit. I was thinking about work, you know, family. Everything seemed hard. And then and then i read i started doing the research for the book and i realized that a lot of a lot of the midlife how we handle midlife really is all about our attitude and i don't want to say that you know we should be whistling a happy tune um when things go badly but what i'm saying is that life life does actually get better and that this is a phenomenon the brain actually begins to look at life more as glass half full as you get out of your 50s and we get a certain equilibrium and i was just so relieved to see that that was happening in the future and actually it's happened to me now i'm happier now we're talking with Barbara Bradley Haggerty, a longtime reporter and correspondent for NPR, whose new book is called Life Reimagined, the Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife. Throughout uh, the course of this week on various NPR shows, you've been hearing her do reports with some of the stories that she has in this book. And if you have questions for her about midlife, we'd love to hear from you at 860-275-7266. One of the ideas you present is this sense, Barbara, that in, in our early years or in our 20s, 
even our teen years, much of life has has very important markers. You you learn to drive, you graduate high school, you can drink, you get married, you there's <laughs> there's so many things that happen along the way and then you hit your 30s and there's even important markers there. But this idea of a middle life is like a paragraph with no punctuation. Yes. I love this. I love this notion. But I, as soon as I, I heard that, I, I sense what you mean. You have yeah. to put markers in there or it's, else it's just blah, blah, blah for 20 years. That's so right. I mean, when, when Kathy Uchneider, who's a, who's a coach um, uh, of mi- uh, middle-aged athletes, essentially, and she teaches at Boston College, when she told me that analogy, it so hit home. Because after your kids are kind of getting independent, it is year after year after year of doing the same thing. And, you know, you're good in your job, but you may not be as challenged in your job as you were in your 20s or your 30s. You you have a lot of wisdom, a lot of expertise, but maybe there's not the challenge. And so actually what I did, um, everyone chooses something uh, Every, okay, the happy midlifers, the kind of little secret of uh, thriving at midlife, is to have what I call a little passion or a little purpose. And that is to get something in your life like learning Spanish or picking up the flute or doing, you know, training for a marathon, something that gives you a sense of victory and daily progress, that you have goals you can kind of set out and reach for yourself. And that creates these markers, that creates the commas and the semicolons and the periods in the paragraph. So for me, uh, what I did uh, is I decided I was challenged by someone I profiled who raced in the Senior Olympics, which is for people 50 and older. I was challenged to see if I could compete in cycling. And uh, so I decided to train for the Senior Olympics. I qualified, and then I competed in them last last year. And I got to tell you, it changed my life, John. It really did. I mean, I would get up each day, and I go, you know, I, when you're writing a book, everything feels really seamless. There aren't the immediate deadlines. There's a big deadline, but not the immediate deadlines. I had little tiny deadlines. Okay, I'm going to see if I can do this this pace today, and I'm going to do a 50-mile ride today, tomorrow. And, you know, I had these goals, and it absolutely gave me a joy in my life. And it seems like that sort of purpose, specifically one that has to do with physical activity, it has almost a, ca- a compounding effect. So you have purpose, so it enables you to set goals in put those punctuation marks on various points of your life. But as you get physically in better shape, that improves your mood and improves your ability to do things. So physical exercise in midlife sounds like it's something that has multiple, multiple benefits. Uh, you know, I know that there's no such thing as an elixir. I know, but exercise is about as good as it gets because not only does it improve your health and your mood, and it staves off depression, and study after study shows us it also really helps your mind, your brain. There's almost nothing you can do that's as good for your brain. So, for example, there aren't a lot of studies of, there are virtually no studies of midlifers exercising, picking up exercise. There's one actually in the works now, but we don't know the results. But what they, what people have done, researchers have done, is they have taken uh, people who are 60 and older or 55 and older, and ask them to start exercising, just brisk walking three times a week. And what they have found, the researchers at uh, the University of, uh, University of uh, Pittsburgh, um, what they have found is that exercising three times a week actually turns back your cognitive clock 
by two years. What that means is it increases the size of your hippocampus. It helps the connections. And the hippocampus is really, really important because that is where memories are are created, formed, you know, and stored. It's where the new learn learning new things is really important. The hippocampus is a big deal. So if you are actually keeping those new cells alive in the hippocampus, you're actually improving your memory. And what they have found is that people's memory is basically better. It's as if they were two years younger than their peers. It's amazing. Um, we're getting some uh, people who want to join the conversation. Frank called up, and he wanted to just leave this question with us or, or this thought. He's from Bethany. He says the idea of midlife crisis applies to him. Maybe not a crisis, Frank, but he says he quit his job. He's going back to school at Middlesex Community College and reinventing himself. This idea of personal reinvention is something that's perhaps a little different than what you're talking about right now, Barbara. I mean, there's there's one way to look at it, which is I am who I am, but I'm going to add things to my life to make this life more meaningful, to make maybe I'll allow it to bring me more joy. But then there are people who feel like I need to stop everything and change what I'm doing. It's called a reinvention. Um, how, how different is reinvention from reimagining, as you presented in your book? Right, right. And, you know, uh, it, there is a difference, although it sounds like Frank may be doing kind of a middle road between reinvention and pivoting, so to speak. Um, and let me, let me explain what I mean by that. What researchers say and career experts say is that it's very unusual for people to completely reinvent their lives in the sense of, I'm a lawyer and I'm going to go to Hollywood and become a Hollywood star. I'm, you know, I'm an accountant and I'm, you know, going to become a chef where they haven't planned for it. They just, this is a fantasy and they've always wanted to do it. And so they drop everything and do it. That the success rate on that is not all that high, mm-hmm. but the success rate on what Frank is doing is is pretty high. And that is, what he's doing is he is actually taking steps to create his next career. And so you do see people do things like, they're, it's essentially dipping a toe in the water. He's going back to school, he's developing an expertise so that he can do that next stage. People do it other ways. People, Some people will volunteer, they'll serve on a board, they'll be the volunteer accountant for Habitat for Humanity. Whatever it is, they will kind of test the waters and see if they really want to do this before quitting their job, generally. Often it's before quitting their job. And then they go ahead and they make that shift. So I would would just congratulate Frank and wish him all the best because what he's doing is a smart type of reinvention, not a radical, you know, fantasy type of reinvention, but a smart one. Barbara Bradley Haggerty is a former correspondent for NPR. His new book is Life Reimagined, The Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife. We'd like to hear from you. What small goals have you set for yourself in midlife? Are you undergoing a reinvention of your life? We'd like to hear your stories at 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Hope you can join us next Tuesday night for a conversation about university foundations and freedom of information. We'll be talking about the Yukon Foundation, which is the fundraising arm of Connecticut's flagship university, and also Connecticut's freedom of information laws. If you want to join us in this important conversation, 6.30 p.m., March 22nd, at the Lyceum in Hartford. Find out more information on our Facebook page. 
Today in the program, we're talking with Barbara Bradley Haggerty. Her new book is Life Reimagined, The Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife. Throughout this week on NPR, you've been hearing her stories from this book, and we want to give you a chance to ask some questions uh, of Barbara Bradley Haggerty at 860-275-7266. Let's go to Max in Glastonbury to start the segment. Hi there, Max. You're on with Barbara. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I'm 21 years old. I'm finishing my third year in college, and I'm kind of at the point chatting with friends where we joke about how real life is around the corner. And my question for Barbara is, what would you recommend for someone who's starting to set some real long-term life goals, and what would you recommend to maybe avoid some of those midlife crises in the future? Thanks, Max. Wow. Wow, that's a really great question. Um, the quarter-life crisis is actually quite a phenomenon. In fact, people who've heard, and some of the younger people have heard some of the stories say, Barb, you need to do something on the quarter-life crisis. Uh, so <laughs> so I know it's a really big phenomenon. I think, I think um, one reality of being what Max is facing is a very different world from John, what you and I faced when we graduated, and that is, it is a harder economic situation. Um, It is just, it's harder to get a paying job, that kind of thing. What I would recommend is that he get the job, he kind of focus on the area that he really loves, and then he just get a job or an internship or something and stick it out there and become absolutely indispensable. That's what I would do in terms of the job. Just go where you want. Go where you really want to be excited. Go where you're learning. Go where your you know heart is and really try to find your way in there, even if you're not paid immediately, because if you're good, you will find a paying job, and that's how you get the contacts. The, I mean, and the other thing is, I think, I think people, um, I think the younger generation. I sound like an old lady, but has kind of learned a little bit from my generation, especially women. Um, in my generation, we women often deferred marriage and family and things like that because they were working so hard and they were just trying to make it in the in the workplace. I was 43 when I was married. And what that meant is that I couldn't have children. I have a wonderful stepdaughter. But I was so focused on my career that I kind of lost track of other things that matter a lot. And I guess what I would say to to Max and especially to young women is to wear bifocals, that career is really important. It is a source of great purpose in your life. It's a source of great activity. But there, but there are other things that are very, very important, and that means family and that means friends. The research is really, really clear about family and friends. There are, they are crucial for you, your being healthy, for your maintaining your memory, for your maintaining your health. They are very, very important. It's incredibly important that we have relationships because relationships help you deal with the world. Your friends take the stressors off of you. So what I guess what I would say, uh, long story short, is what I would say is is. Do the thing you love. Really try to get your foot in the door there, but also wear bifocals and and recognize that there's other things than just work. You know, and, and I want to actually talk about that that piece uh, in your book about how important friends are in just a moment. But something that I was thinking about when when Max called was, and this is maybe my own perceptions of things. Unlike a lot of people, Barbara, I, I felt, and maybe there's many people who, who are listening who, who felt this way, that I didn't have this great dream as a teenager or a 20-something about 
the the markers in life or what life would be like after I reached a certain goal, I, I kind of figured, well, I don't know what it's going to be like. And so I personally feel a lot happier in midlife because I didn't have all these expectations. In that way, it's like an awful lot of millennials who I know who expect that they're going to change their jobs every couple of years, who don't expect that they're going to get a long-term career with a pension and they're going to stay someplace for 30 years and eventually get miserable at it. A lot of young people I know expect that they're going to change constantly. They're going to right. do new things. They're going to meet new people. They're going to move to new places. And that, if you're able to do it, seems like one of the recipes that Max is looking for. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it's true. It's true for millennials. It's true for Gen Xers. It's true true for baby boomers. There is a there's kind of a new math of of career these days, and that is that you cannot you cannot count on being employed by, obviously, by a single company or a single organization for any given length of time. You really can't. It's, uh, there's, there's not much job security. And so I think what people have to do is they have to think about themselves, and I find this terrifying, they have to think about themselves as a company, as a brand. What do I what do I bring to bear? What are my skills and talents? What do I do uniquely well that can contribute to this organization or that organization? And when you have that kind of independence, you don't feel like you're just, uh, you know, you're just a cog in the wheel or whatever, but you feel that you have this, these gifts and talents that you can offer. Then I think you have a sense of independence and can go more easily from place to place. It's something that's really hard for midlifers like me to absorb because, I've I worked for two companies my entire life mm-hmm. and I never had to think about what my brand is or what I what do I have to offer but that's the new world that we live in and the uh, the other thing I would say is that midlifers are not like their parents their parents could actually probably afford to retire at 65 they might have a pension they weren't going to live that much longer after 65 we have a whole new math now I mean, we, I'm not going to retire at 65. No one can really retire at 65. So if you are going to work for until you're 70 or maybe 75, what can you do that has meaning, that's sustainable, that's not just kind of getting a paycheck, but how can you bring meaning to your work and purpose to your work and give yourself a sense of identity? And that's what midlifers really need to think about as they rethink their career. There's so much to talk about in just the, the last couple minutes of conversation here, including an email that I'm going to read to you in a moment. But something you just said actually reminded me of, of a question that I wanted to ask, Barbara, when I listened to uh, you on with my colleague, Laura Canoy, up in, up in New Hampshire. The first phone caller uh, said something that I think some of our callers are probably thinking about, which is this all sounds well and good for people who have the ability to indulge themselves in a midlife crisis or to be able to take the time to pivot or reinvent. But for a lot of working people, that's just not even a a possibility. I I think about people in my own family. My my grandfather lived to be about 60 years old and worked in a steel mill. He never had time to have a midlife crisis, and most of his generation didn't. So what what do you say or what does the research show for people who have blue-collar jobs, who work in, in a way that maybe doesn't allow them the luxury of some of the things that we're talking about in terms of reinvention? It says precisely that. It says that. It says that midlife crisis is often a privilege of um, the middle class or upper middle class. It is a, it is a privilege. Um, it, isn't that a weird thing to say? Oh, good. Yeah. I'm so privileged. I get to have a midlife crisis. <laughs> yeah. But in fact, when people are working 
two jobs or trying to get their both both spouses or both partners are working two jobs or you're a single mom or a single dad, you really don't have time to sit back and go, oh my goodness, what is my purpose in life? You are trying to get food on the table. And so in that sense, it's true with work. It's true even with marriage that having these crises is a little bit of a privilege. And uh, and that's kind of that. So in a, in a way, I mean, I feel really badly about that. I feel like um, on the one hand, they're lucky they don't have a midlife crisis. On the other hand, they're unlucky that they don't have the opportunity to rethink as much, reinvent their lives as much. And that's that's a tragedy. We heard a caller before, Max, who said he's 21. He's looking for tips to avoid a midlife crisis. I got an email from Sierra Marie uh, who writes this. I'm only 37 years old, but I think I'm in the midst of a midlife experience. Why so early? Probably a combination of experiences, she writes. And and here are a few of them, Barbara. Uh, She says, I was a young parent and had many of my life experiences much earlier than my peers. Also, I have a chronic disease that may shorten the length of my life. I married someone three years older than me. She's turning 40 this year, and it seems to have triggered a sense for me of being at a halfway mark. And though my parents were also young parents, they are not that old. My wife was a surprise youngest child in her family. My parents aren't in fan- uh, are not in fantastic health, and their mortality has been a reminder for me of mine. Mm-hmm. I went back to school five years ago, she writes. I've been in a period of reinvention or pivoting. Next year, I will graduate and really find myself in this period of asking myself how I want to approach the latter half of my life. I wonder if you've uh, encountered others who have experienced a sense of midlife earlier than is typical. Yes. What she, what she is describing is really, it's it's really illustrative of actually what we were just talking about. So researchers say that um, midlife occurs earlier for people who don't have a college or graduate degree than it does for those who, who do. Because if you think about it, m- Life begins earlier. Um, adult life begins earlier. If you graduate from high school and then get married or have a partner and have children at you know age twenty one, twenty two, by forty they're gone, right? They're um, your that that has kind of been moved up. Your midlife, your whole life has been moved up, and so you're not having your midlife crisis, so to speak, at forty five or fifty. You're having it more at 37, and researchers say that. Um, or when I say re- midlife crisis, I should say you're having your midlife earlier, like at 37. I think what she is experiencing, though, uh, we notice that she had children young. Um, she, uh, it sounds like she didn't go to college. The chronic disease is really ages someone, and my heart goes out to her. My husband has type one diabetes, and I know it makes you just. He talks about how he just feels older than he is because of the chronic disease. All of these things, and I've talked to other people. All of these things actually push midlife up sooner for her. But I want to congratulate her because what she is doing by graduating, going to school, graduating, rethinking her career, it's actually very, very good for her health. It's good for her psyche. It's good for her body. It's good for her mind. I think she's going to find a rejuvenation. Um, and and so I, I congratulate her, and I wish her all the best. If you want to email us, uh, it's where we live at WNPR.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We're going to get to some more of your phone calls at 860-275-7266 in just a moment. You mentioned earlier the value of friendships, and I guess I'm wondering if you can talk us through some of the scientific underpinning of this, because it seems obvious that people who 
are are happily in relationships with lots of great friends, are probably going to be happier people and, and live longer. But there's an awful lot of brain science that has supported this in recent years. And I think that that's a it points to the reason why we shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be lonely, why we should surround ourselves with good, good friends. Oh, you know, you're you're so right. It's really fascinating. In fact, the some of the research suggests that friends are more important to your health and your memory, your brain, than family is. And when you think about it, if you think about that for a second, it kind of makes sense because friends are disposable. And that means that the ones that are causing you a lot of angst, stress, raising your cortisol levels, all of that, those are friends that you can back away from, right, and not have in your life all the time. If you have a family member that does that to you, there's not much you can do about it. You are taking on that stress. And so, um, so, its friends are incredibly important. Can I just tell you a little bit about um, what I what I did as an experiment, and that'll kind of illustrate how important friends are. Um, I went to UVA, a University of uh, Virginia, and um, had a test done on myself. Uh, my husband opted out because he was for a very funny reason, which I can tell you about later. But <laughs> I went down with a very good friend of mine, and what we did is this experiment where they put an anklet on my ankle, which would give me an electric shock, which hurt a whole lot. Uh, they put me in a brain scanner, and then they tested me under three conditions. If I, if I saw an X, that meant that I might get this electric shock when I'm, looking in the, when I'm looking at the screen in the brain scanner. If I saw a zero, then that meant that I wouldn't be getting an electric shock. What they wanted to see is what did my brain do when I anticipated this, you know, fearful, awful electric shock. And they tested me in three conditions, holding no one's hand, holding a stranger's hand, and holding my very good friend's hand. It turns out I was very typical. What happened is that when I was holding a stranger's hand or no one's hand, my brain just lit up like a Christmas tree. All the fear centers lit up. I was threatened. When I was holding my friend's hand, my brain was quiet. It was as if there was no pain coming at all. It was, it, it was a different orientation toward the world. And what this shows you is here's what friends do for you. Friends take the stress off of you. They help you share the burden of life. If I have a good, my good friend Jody is a, a, a journalist, I can talk to her about my journalism woes. I can talk to other people about other things. What that means is that I am sharing the burden of life with them, and it actually has a biological effect on me. It lowers my, it boosts my immune system. It lowers my blood pressure. It lowers my cortisol levels. It makes me live longer. And that's what's, I mean, it is a stunning finding. And on the other hand, if you are lonely, what happens is you're basically courting sickness and death. Uh, Suicides, murder, you know, all sorts of things are associated with loneliness, depression. You are much more likely to have a heart attack or stroke, high blood pressure or compromised immune system. Being lonely is like smoking 15 cigarettes a day or being obese or drinking excessively. So being lonely is almost the worst thing you can do for yourself. So have friends. <laughs> Even if you're married, keep your friends. Have friends, certainly. But another thing that you write about that I, I've been fascinated by recently is is this idea of how important it is for one to do things for other people. I recently moderated a panel at the Connecticut Forum, and one of the panelists was Dr. Keltner, who's the great Berkeley psychologist who uh, contributed yes. to the Disney film uh, Inside Out. And he's, he talks and writes an awful lot about 
just how positive it is for your mental and physical well-being to do things for other people. And you have a a chapter here uh, that actually starts, if you want a healthy glow and a happy midlife, here's a secret. Give it away, your time, your money, whatever it is at your disposal, give it to someone else. Why is this so important, Barbara? Oh, it's 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 a function of midlife. It's a function of a healthy midlife is to give, to give it away, to stop investing in yourself, in your career, you know, accumulating house, family, all of that stuff. At some point, you begin to realize that I need to take a look at the long game. I need to invest in the future. I need to invest in causes. And you start giving it away. It's called generativity. And it is the hallmark of a, of a happy midlife. And it turns out that generativity does all sorts of things for you. It increases your um, oxytocin levels. It just it makes volunteering is like a super drug. I mean, it makes you so much healthier. It reduces your risk of stroke and heart attack. It makes you happier, staves off um, depression. It keeps your memory better. I mean, there are piles of studies that show that things like volunteering, and the sweet spot is two hours a week, but things like volunteering tremendously help your health, and they make you a happier person. And so, you know, it's kind of nice to know that doing good is good, is good for you. It's a, it's a, it's a major finding. And if more people would kind of think more about the outside world, they would find themselves being blessed both um, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, and physically. We're talking today with Barbara Bradley Haggerty, whose book is Life Reimagined, The Science Art and Opportunity of Midlife. She joins us from NPR Studios in Washington. We'd like to hear from you at 860-275-7266. Your stories of midlife. Is it a crisis you're going through or is it something different? Maybe a pivot or a reinvention. We'll get back to some of your stories. You can also email us where we live at WNPR.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, what if commuting between Connecticut and Long Island meant hopping into a car or maybe a train and traveling through a tunnel deep below Long Island Sound? It sounds kind of far-fetched, but if you're Amtrak or even if you're New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo, you might not think it's so far-fetched. We'll take a closer look at a plan for a really, really big dig on the next Where We Live. Today we're talking with Barbara Bradley Haggerty. She's an award-winning journalist who spent nearly 20 years as a correspondent for NPR. Her new book is called Life Reimagined, The Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife. She joins us from NPR Studios in Washington today. We'll get some more of your calls in a moment at 860-275-7266. I will say we got a tweet, Barbara, from Data Haven. They do a lot of data crunching here in Connecticut, and they say all of the issues your guest is talking about were also findings in our recent well-being survey of 16,000 Connecticut adults. And, you know, we've, we've talked to them about this too. A lot of people are trying to study happiness, to quantify it, to figure it out. And, and a lot of what is in your book really is about that. Ways to say, yeah, the things that we, I don't know, intuitively know are probably good for us actually are really, really good for us, especially as our brains and our bodies are aging. In midlife, these these little tricks for happiness actually make a big difference in the overall health of a, of a society or a state. That's right. That's right. And, you know, one thing I wanted to mention, because um, it's it's there's a little psychological trait that is kind of the Cinderella trait um, uh, in the sense that people never really notice this trait. And now they are and they think it's really, really hot. Right. (laughs) It's a really attractive trait. And that is called um, purpose in life. And the reason I bring this up is because there is a there people are beginning. Researchers are beginning to think about the difference between 
uh, what's called hedonia and short-term happiness and eudaimonia, which is kind of the long-term purposefulness, um, striving for a larger goal, that kind of thing. And what they are finding is that when you, and purpose in life is very much associated with that longer-term striving, what it means to have raised good children. It may not make, it may not be easy in the moment, but it is long-term, a really wonderful thing to do. Training for a marathon, it hurts today, it's going to feel better tomorrow, and it's good for your health. So what what researchers are doing is they're looking at this idea of purpose in life. Do you have these good goals, something to get you out of bed in the morning? And they are finding that it is incredibly important for your memory and your body. And if I might just tell you about one I think the most stunning research I've seen. I went to uh, Rush University University Medical Center, and I talked with researchers there who showed me brain slices of a woman named Marge. Now, the the research that they had done is they had followed, they were following and continue to follow people from age 60 on, and they give them cognitive tests every year, and they give them psychological tests every single year. And then at the end of this time, the people who, the participants have agreed to have their brains autopsied after, after they die. What these researchers have found is that the people, fully a third of the people who have the plaques and tangles of Alzheimer's disease showed no symptoms of dementia, no memory loss, no change in personality, nothing like that when they were alive, right up to when they died. So then the researchers go, wow, well, gosh, how do you explain that? And they have all this data. They have this data from, you know, did they have friends? Were they intellectually engaged? Were they, did they exercise? Were they conscientious? You know, psychological traits. They look back and they go, what, what are the things that contributed to making these people so-called escapees of dementia? And what they found is the number one trait was this thing called purpose in life. People who have a reason to get out of bed, whether it's their grandchildren or children, a political cause, their community, whatever it is, people who have a reason to get out of bed in life, in, life, in the morning, they, ha- they basically cheat. They are more likely to cheat the symptoms of Alzheimer's. It is a, a really stunning finding, and it's very, very secure. So what that tells me is I've got to, I've got to have a reason, a purpose in life. I have to get out of bed with kind of vigor and a long-term goal because that is really good for my brain. Mm. I want to get to a phone call here. Anne-Marie is calling from Washington, Connecticut. Hi, Anne-Marie. Go ahead. Anne-Marie, are you there? Hi, how are you? I had I'm, to take you off speakerphone. Oh, no no problem. You're on with Barbara Bradley Haggerty. Well, I just wanted to share that um, listening to her, you, you, what you're talking about today is sort of my life story. Um, I was able to, uh, I had a midlife crisis after a pregnancy, unexpected pregnancy in my, my early 40s, and it changed my life. And like, your, like your, um, the person who's speaking today said, um, I was very blessed to be able to do this, but I went back to school. Um, I got my master's degree, and right now I work as a hospice chaplain, so I found a lot of meaning and purpose in my life, and so you just have to embrace it if this happens to you and if you have the opportunity to go for it, because it really will change your life. And Marie, before I let you go, I just love to ask you. You say you're a hospice chaplain. This is yeah. this is what you've chosen. I would I would bet that in that work, you not only have found purpose, but you have also been on the front lines of a type of a sociological experiment of people who 
who have both found joy in life and, and not as much joy. Do you, could you talk about that for a moment, about, about yeah. observing that in others? Well, it's actually very interesting. I find that the people that have done this work in their life have made significant changes, become the person who they were meant to be, not the person they were told to be by their families and stuff. They end up to be much happier at the end of life. While the people that haven't done this work end up to be very dissatisfied and um, emotionally and spiritually struggling with a lot of things. So I, I really feel that if you do this work and, and go for it, you will feel so much better. And so I encourage people to do that. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. You know, John, what she has done really, it it, it epitomizes um, kind of what we're talking about. She not only found a new purpose in life, she not only found her passion, something she really loves, but she's also generative. She is actually giving back. She's giving of herself to other people who can't pay her back. So what she is doing, and she and it's interesting and it's engaging, She she is doing exactly what I would suggest she do, and more important, what researchers would suggest she do. She's really... Um, Good on her. She did well. Mm. I, I want to ask you about something that uh, I was going to ask you about anyway, but since she brought it up, I, I, I figure I, sh- I should do now. But many of us know your work with NPR in, in part as someone who covered religion and spirituality. How, how, how big a part does that play, and, and how have you viewed that through your middle life? Well, let me tell you— um... I'm really glad you asked about that. I really am, because I, in, in the initial proposal for the book, I had a chapter called Mid-Faith Crisis, mm-hmm. right? And I, what I realized in starting to do the reporting was it was just so different from all the other elements. Um, there's really no research about on it. There's no brain science about mid-faith crisis. I'd done already a, a book about the science of spirituality, so I didn't want to retread that. But, but what I do think, what I do think happens, and I've talked to people about this, happened to me, is that um, one's faith journey, one's, you know, relation, if you want to put it this way, one's relationship with God is like any other relationship in that you may have this kind of honeymoon period where you really feel that your faith is strong and, you know, the the flowers smell beautiful and everything, and, you know, God is present and all of these things. And then life gets harder, right? Because God is not a vending machine. It's not like, oh, I'm going to pray and therefore life is going to get easy for me again. No, life gets hard. And you sometimes this happens a lot. You feel disconnected. Gosh, I'm praying and praying or I'm doing this. I'm serving a church or synagogue or whatever. And life is still hard. What is this about? And that is the kind of mid-faith crisis I'm talking about where you feel, boy, I'm, I feel alone in the universe um, spiritually. People do pull out of this, um, but I think it's a really fascinating topic. And I went through it myself, this sense of, gosh, I work so hard at my faith, and yet sometimes I feel like I'm just, my prayers are hitting the ceiling, so to speak, and no one no one hears them. And I think it's it's things, it's something that everyone goes through, and it's like a, a relationship. You just, you, you keep going. 
Since you mentioned relationships in the last couple of minutes, I, we should talk about marriage in midlife, and and it is something that's very complicated. We we seem to be in the midst of a of a kind of a gray divorce revolution, and a lot of people are saying, "I've been married for thirty years, but I'm still going to live for another twenty, thirty years, and maybe this isn't the right person for me." What what have you learned about that? Because it is a fascinating new trend in in society. I think. It is. Yes. Baby boomers are real overachievers when it comes to divorce. (laughs) So, and you're right. One of the reasons is because people are living longer. Um, Another major reason is that women, for the first time in history, are financially independent and can afford to actually divorce. And it's usually the women who ask for the divorce. And the other thing is that... um, I kind of alluded to this before, but I I think that a really good marriage is almost... um, uh, high it's almost a privilege um, we have we have reassessed what's really important in marriage we have really high expectations it used to be that the man brought home the money and the woman kind of oversaw the household and that was enough well now we want our partners to be help us raise the children to you know be your best friend your your romantic partner to make your career aspirations come true and it's really really a high bar and so when people when people feel like they're spouse or partner isn't doing all of that, given that they have maybe another 20, 30 years to live, given that they may have the financial independence to do it, they go, yeah, you know, maybe I can find someone who checks more of these boxes. And you see that. And so what's happened is is um, Eli Finkel um, at Northwestern talks about this. He talks about a really good marriage being a luxury good, that people who have the time and the money to invest in a relationship are really happy. But most people, most most couples have two working spouses or partners and taking care of the kids. And a lot of people just have a lot of stress. And that is part of what's going on with the gray divorce revolution. Mm. I I should ask you, because you teased us with this before, why did your husband opt out of that study when when he was going to hold your hand? (laughs) He said, I'm afraid your brain will say that you don't love me. <laughs> Which would not be the case, but he didn't want to put it to the test. <laughs> well, but it's, no, it, it, that's actually a really interesting story because that's another thing that happens, right? We go through this life, we're trying to cope with who we are and then how other people perceive us and whether or not we are being viewed, whether it's in our workplace or uh, amongst our friends or with our spouse in the way that we perceive ourselves. And and I would feel, Barbara, that that's, that's another big piece of this, the self-awareness that we have, the, the more accumulated knowledge we have over all these years, now we've got it. But we're also loaded with all this baggage of how do we interpret it? How do others interpret us? That is a, a big pile of stuff to deal with, just as your you know body starts to fall apart at the same time. Right. right. And I would say I would say that in your 40s, it feels like a net negative. But as you hit your 50s, all that accumulated knowledge actually is a net positive. And I, I mean, you you only need to look at your brain um, to see I think most of us think, you know, when we hit our 40s or 50s, our brains are slowing down, they're, t- they're turning to mush and all of that. This is, a, this is a really good example of how things are actually getting better in midlife. So think of, there are two parts of the brain. 
uh, two types of intelligence, I should say, not two parts of the brain. One is called fluid intelligence, and that's, you know, the Sherlock Holmes type of raw IQ. Can you solve novel problems really quickly? That intelligence, that fluid intelligence, goes downhill after age 30. I mean, it's not pretty. It's, it's really too bad. But at the same time, there's something called crystallized intelligence. And this goes to what we were talking about before. That is everything you scoop up over a lifetime, your knowledge, your expertise, your wisdom. How do I navigate the workplace? How do I navigate this relationship? All of that stuff continues to grow and accumulate right through your 70s. And what happens in your midlife is that you're actually at your peak performance when it comes to your brain because your fluid intelligence has not decreased that much, but your expertise and your knowledge and your wisdom has increased tremendously. And so what I would say is that accumulated knowledge, even though it might, you know, where I'm acutely aware that I have a lot of wrinkles on my face, right? Um, that knowledge actually is a net benefit because you begin to get more comfortable in yourself. You care a little bit less, and this is true, you care a little bit less about what other people think of you. And you begin to think, how am I going to use these glorious days for good purpose? And that becomes more of your objective, which you can do because you know yourself. You know, we just have two minutes left, but you talked earlier about cheating dementia with a purpose in life. A lot of people are concerned about losing their their mental facilities as they get get older but you've done some things to try to keep your brain sharp you know this whole idea of teaching your brain new tricks and really keeping the memory sharp what do people do yeah, so they don't have to do brain training tests. They can go to a museum. They can learn to play the guitar. They can learn Spanish. Anything that is new and challenging will create new connections in your brain, and you will actually get smarter. So there is so much that we can do without resorting to, you know, brain training games. You can also exercise. And I'll tell you, the brain is a part of the body, too. And the more you exercise, the healthier it is. Um, Barbara, before I let you go, did this writing this book change your life in any way? I mean, do you feel like you're looking ahead at the next 20 or 30 years of your life in a much different way after the research and, and the thought that put, went into this? You know, when I started the book, I was really pretty depressed about what the future was going to look like. I thought it was a downhill, you know, kind of all downhill from here. I am so much more optimistic. I, I'm having the time of my life. It is a really great time. And I've got to tell you, this research is, is what gives me encouragement. I think midlife is a great time and beyond. I, I'm, I'm encouraged by the fact that it, it, from everything you've told me and everything that's in your book, things will actually get better from now over the course of the next 10 years for me. I'm, I feel good. I don't know about you, but thank you so much for, for this, Barbara. <laughs> well, thank you. And you're a newbie anyway to the midlife experience. So. <laughs> I know. I feel like I'm getting there every day. Barbara Bradley Haggerty, an award-winning journalist. She spent nearly 20 years as a correspondent for NPR. Her new book is called Life Reimagined, The Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife. She joined us today from the studios of NPR in Washington, D.C. Thank you again, Barbara. It was a pleasure, John. Continue this conversation online. Go to WNPR.org slash Where We Live. We've also got conversations about this going on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Our program is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Kion Wolf is our technical producer. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Talarski. Our interns, Stephanie Reef and Ross Levin. I'm John Dankosky. This is Where We Live. 